Welcome to the IFTA podcast. This is Wieland Alt, President of the International Federation of Technical Analysts. Our goal is to encourage the highest standards of professional ethics and competence among technical analysts worldwide. To learn more about us, visit ifta.org. Welcome, everyone. This is our um, exclusive IFTA interview with one of our keynote speakers, Mr. Daryl Guppy, all the way from Australia. I'm, I'm here in the UK. Daryl, welcome. Um, great to have you in the conference in, in, in a very short space of time. Uh, what will you be sharing with us? What key messages? Key messages? The key message, I suppose, there are two of them. First of all, as my title of my speech says, you need to trade what you see, not what you believe. And I mean, I pity you living in the UK, you're locked into a single room, you've been there for the last <laughs> six or eight or ten weeks. You've got this belief that somehow the world is coming to an end. Is that really what the market's telling us at this point in time? This is the balance that we all have to come up with. We look at the economy, we look at the, the, the economic outcomes, we look at those fundamentals, which as technical analysts we should never do, but nevertheless, you know, we, this, the news creeps in, the world is collapsing, the economy is collapsing, I can't buy my favourite coffee, it's not available, the chocolate's disappeared, the world's come to an end, but the market's still going up. So what do we believe? Do we believe that the reality is going to catch up with the market, in which case the market will collapse, therefore we ought to be short rather than long, or do we believe what the market is telling us, that we ought to be long and forget the rest of the stuff that's out the window. It's just a wild figment of our imagination. It's a nightmare that's going to disappear. That's really the key question that we've really all been grappling with for the last six months. It's, you hit on a really important pain point for so many people. I mean, this year, 2020, the, the year of the, the big elephant in the room, the, the pandemic, the economic lockdown. And as you say, I mean, even right here as we speak right now, we might be locked up in our, in our homes, you know, for, for good reason in terms of, uh, the safety aspect. And I've just actually flown in from abroad, managed to get that working. Uh, but it was an interesting experience to actually uh, see the difference of perspectives between countries. Uh, and, and, and to your point, perspective, perception, I mean, surely that's what we trade when we look at the markets. We're looking at the market perception of whatever information is being priced in. Well, that's the theory. But we can't really divorce ourselves from the broader picture, we're not, I mean, sorry, we are all sitting in an individual room at the moment, cut off from the world, but we're probably actually logging on more frequently, listening to the news feeds, the social media feeds, BBC News, whatever news feed that you're, you're locked into, CNBC, etc. And that's giving you a perspective that you have to basically ignore if you're going to trade what you see on the chart. And that's much more difficult than it sounds because no matter what we do, we look at the chart and in the back of our mind is this environmental factor that says, oh, I can't be right, no, no, it, it, it's gotta go down, it's gotta go down, I'm gonna short this. And it keeps on going up, of course, and you know, you're in, uh, you've got serious problems. So it, it's, it's, although we can make fun of it, it's actually quite a serious issue. Now, in the past, in a normal condition, when we can open the door and move out of our rooms, we get a whole lot of background noise coming in and we learn to adjust with that fairly easily one way or another. There's a whole lot of competing sources. But here, the dominant story is doom and gloom and mounting mortality rates and all the rest of it. So it's really difficult to take a positive look on a chart and say, yep, that's where the trend is and it might be defying all gravity, logic and all the rest of it, but it is going up. Therefore, I need to be long rather than short. 
There's an old term, uh, an age old term that, that, uh, that we will, we'll both know and many audience members I'm sure would have heard, don't fight the tape. What's been your kind of key understanding of, of, of that age old uh, statement? We're slow learners. <laughs> Indeed. Did I fight the tape when the, the market collapsed? Yes, I did. I mean, I didn't trade short because I don't always feel comfortable trading short. Let someone else take those particular opportunities. I like to be relatively optimistic, so I prefer to trade from the long side. Did we delay a re-entry? Yes, we did. We fought the tape. We looked at it. Oh, no, it can't be right. No, we can't get a recovery like this. We'll stay out of the market and watch all these people get burnt. Oh, yeah, well, they're up 15% and we're still setting flat. That doesn't matter. We've made up since then. But um, yes, you can't fight the tape. But that is too glib a statement in this type of environment. This is, this is a global catastrophe. And it's much, much worse than the GFC because uh, it's a catastrophe of an entirely different nature. Uh, and it's got a much, much wider environmental spread than other than people just involved in the market. So it's very difficult to sit back and say, mm, yep, okay, I'm just going to concentrate on what the chart is telling me and ignore all of this other external information coming in. Uh, and yes, there's no need to actually get up and go to the fridge and eat more food before I come back and look at the chart to see whether it's gone down. You know, all those sorts of things feed into it. And we can't ignore them. So we have to, it's like habits, all right? You look at people, they go to the doctor, they've had a heart attack. And the doctor says, you've got to change your habits. You've got to change your eating habits, your exercise habits, and all the rest of the stuff. What happens? 98% of people don't change their habits and they die of a heart attack, a subsequent heart attack. Right. Now, that's a life and death matter. When we're talking about trading the market, we're not trading, talking about life and death as such. So imagine how much more difficult it is to change those habits. So what we've got to engage in is what I would call harm minimization rather than changing habits. So when we're looking in this current situation where there's such a disconnect between the fundamental realities, what we can see outside of our narrow little window and the end of our street and what we're seeing on a price chart, we really have to be able to sit back and say, yes, this is where I'm focused. Ignore what's out there in that limited view. Ignore what's coming through the news feeds. Just focus purely on the chart. Not as easy as it sounds. And, and part, part of that reason, I mean, it's certainly the technical analysts that they'll be watching I mean, from IFTA will, will be looking at their kind of chart patterns and their classic Dow theory, but then also uh, the, the rule of confirmation and, and this general kind of divergence or dislocation that's happening on the charts. So if we look at uh, uh, kind of Tech Street, uh, Wall Street and Main Street, so NASDAQ, uh, S&P 500 or the Dow and the Russell 2000, what's your take on, on this kind of lead lag that's going on? Which chart is, 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 is kind of sharing that, that straight line truth as, as to what, what will likely happen into year end of the new year? I think that we're looking, I mean, to a very large extent, the Dow lags, uh, both the S&P and the NASDAQ, and the Dow lags, the, uh, lags those indexes because its constituents, it's, it's those that make up the Dow, uh, let's call them in a broad sense, old economy rather than new economy. They're not the companies that benefit from this digital approach that COVID has brought out and accelerated. So NASDAQ is obviously the clear winner there. S&P still has loadings out of that, let's call it a digital economy. So it's probably the middle mover and so on. But the idea that we follow leaders and laggards, there's not that much difference in the turning points at the moment. There was a little while ago, but that seems to have disappeared. 
So, you know, we might have been watching the NASDAQ and executing on the S&P because of the lag that was involved there. That's no longer a particularly valid strategy. Key factor is they're all behaving in much the same way. There's a minor advantage in getting into one rather than another, but in the final wash-up, that's not much of a difference. The key factor is the trend behaviour and trend stability. That's what you're looking at at this point in time. And, and looking at the world, Daryl, uh, just to add to that chart perspective, we're, we're in kind of polar opposite countries, uh, Australia, UK, uh, and our local markets will, will behave in different ways. Certainly looking here, uh, I think generally year to date, we're negative. Um, Australia, I, I think, is, is holding up a lot more stronger. But how, how does your world view compared to the US? Well, you know, the Australian, Australians have a reputation of being laid back and lazy, and that's a pretty good description of our market. So we got up and jumped when the, you know, in, in March after the market had fallen, after the initial falls when COVID began to hit. But really, for the last six months, we've been trading sideways in a very broad trading band. So we're not quite as badly off as the UK, but we're not performing in the same way as, say, the Shanghai market or the US markets. And if I can circle back, seeing I mentioned Shanghai, now, I do a lot of work in China. I don't, I do read Chinese, but my reading is so slow that, you know, it's, it's not a matter of keeping up with the news. By the time I'm finished reading, several days have passed, as it were. But I've been trading the Chinese market for more than a decade. And all I have to rely on is what I see on the chart. So to some extent, I'm more effectively equipped for this environment in the sense that I completely ignore, I don't know what's happening from a fundamental basis within the China environment. All I'm taking off is what I'm seeing on the charts. So it's a little bit easier for me in some sense just to come back and look at the charts and say, yep, outside it's pretty bad, charts looking pretty good, therefore I will follow what I see on the chart rather than what I see elsewhere. But one of the things that's interesting is that we have a whole group of people who have far too much time on their hands. <laughs> they sit down with social media. They sit down with WhatsApp, with Twitter. And I'm not just talking about the US presence in this instance. I'm talking about the broader group. So what we've seen, which is disturbing, is this great trash pile of incompetent technical analysis that's appearing on social media, which is so poor and so bad, and it is misleading people. Now, it's got two consequences. One... People get the wrong direction and they will lose money when they should have been making money. But more importantly, from our perspective, it gives technical analysis a bad name. And that's a really serious concern. And it's something I want to address uh, when I'm talking on Saturday because there are, let's call them defined rules, there are templates that we can use. We need to be able to recognise this poor analysis when it turns up. Perhaps we don't need it quite as much, but those colleagues of ours who are new into technical analysis, they need to be able to determine what is absolute total garbage, even though it looks good on a chart, and what is the reality. Uh, and they'll give you a couple of examples of those uh, in, uh, on Saturday. But that's a real concern. What's coming out on social media and the way that, that it takes our status as technicians almost back to the 20th century where we were kept more or less in broom cupboards and no one really talked about the witchcraft and reading tea leaves and so on. So we've got to be very careful on that. That's one of the consequences that's coming out of this at the moment, I think. It, it, it's, it's a great 
concern and a great point that, that you raise and, and one that I think feeds through to the IFTA mission in terms of you know, uh, raising the standards of, of our discipline of technical analysis and, and, uh, and, and having the gold standard for, for examination, um, the CFT exam, and, and what that means for people to, to maybe consider the exam or even just to consider doing that extra work um, as they would with any other business uh, to, in, in terms of the, the discipline, the number of hours. Um, I had a brief chat with uh, Larry Williams uh, as part of this uh, uh, interview uh, series, and, and he spoke about the 10,000 rule, where, you know, the, the, the mastery uh, journey where you really go all in um, in order to, to really know your craft. Um, it just, that's, just, that's, that's, that's remember, you can waste 10,000 hours. Just because you put 10,000 hours in doesn't mean you're actually headed in the right direction. Uh, and that is also an emerging issue uh, that's around. But I would also say, um, and this is, a, this is a gratuitous self plug, there's a lots of very good books out there that detail uh, analysis of markets and behaviours and, and so on. Look, you don't necessarily have to go through a formal education. There is a tremendous resource uh, of books, you know, and I may have written one or two, you know, Larry's written one or two. As I said, purely gratuitous, that one. Yeah, and, and self-study is a great starting point and, and also the, the, the practice of, of the market itself. And for those who want to uh, take, uh, take it up on, the, on, on the, the education ladder, that, that's another option. But, but circling back to your point, um, Darren, you've made the rare kind of crossover between analysis and trading. So what would you say to many of those, uh, I mean, the traders, but also the new ones that have, that have been born this year out of the, uh, the March crash low, uh, what key insights after all of these years of, of skin in the game uh, would you share with, with those traders looking to, to be resilient, looking to follow rules? What would you suggest? The key aspect, I suppose, first of all, is that there is only one combination of analysis methods and tools that suits you. And they're going to work in just a particular selected set of circumstances. If you can master just that particular set of circumstances, learn to recognize when it's there, trade it within a disciplined fashion, execute your plan, then you'll make money. If you're really good, you may end up with two or three or four circumstances which suit your trading style. The idea that you can develop a particular technique that is applicable in all markets at all times and all instruments, that doesn't work. It's not going to be there. So although when we first start, we all want to try and explore as much as possible, and that's a, a very valid approach, as we get older and wiser and get less hair, as you may see, then we tend to focus on just one or two techniques that are consistent. So we wait for the market to come to those, to consistency, to compatibility with the techniques that we know we're gonna succeed in. So, for instance, my son uh, is in the south of Australia at the moment, and he, we're just being in the north, and in the north we, we, we're not tied down, we don't have any COVID problem at all, so we've gone fishing. And we go fishing, and the concerns that we have when we fish is that there are crocodiles that are fishing as well, and they're fishing for us as well as for the fish. So there is a danger aspect that's involved. The fish that we're looking for are large fish. We're not interested in the little small ones. In fact, the minimum size is 50 centimetres. That's, uh, what, about um, 18, 20 inches. Anything smaller than that, you ought to throw it back. It's undersized. My son, and his, my son works very, very well on that. We catch a lot of fish. He's gone down south. 
It's cold, it's wet, it's miserable. It's almost like England, I suppose you might say, in that sense. <laughs> the fish are small. I mean, you can fit them into a sardine can. The only danger is freezing to death. There are no crocodiles there, but you know, it's an entirely different environment. Is fishing success? Zero. He's a good fisherman in a particular set of conditions. So when it comes to the market, we tend to be good traders in a particular set of conditions. So we wait for those conditions to develop because I'm an independent trader. I don't trade for any company. I'm not trading funds or anything like that. I just simply trade for myself. And the primary and biggest advantage that I have is that I do not have to trade. My institutional colleagues, they got no choice. They have to trade every day whether the market's good, bad or indifferent. Me, I can sit back and wait. Yep, that suits my particular conditions. That's what I know I do well. Go in and trade just that particular segment of the market at that particular set of time. And after all, we need to remember that from my perspective anyway, the purpose of trading the market is to give me a lifestyle that I can enjoy, which is time off to go fishing, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to be stuck in front of a screen all day. I've got lots of other things I want to do. It's a way of making money. And as long as that, that ATM, that, uh, that hole in the wall machine is generating money, yeah, that's all it has to do. I don't have to be there all the time. And that I think is the key message that we do not have to be involved in the market all of the time, that we need to be, be patient and wait for the conditions that are compatible with our methods, our feeling, our techniques. Of course, they will change over time. And one of the key problems that comes along is our reactions to trauma. Because when we've been through a traumatic uh, situation, our appetite for risk changes. Yes. Let me give you some examples of this. So I'm not involved in real estate, right? The traditional road to wealth in Australia is you buy a house and then you buy another house. And you know, you've got shows in the UK that do all this sort of stuff. Well, I've got this terrible run of bad luck with housing. The first house I bought was destroyed by earthquake. The second house I bought was destroyed by flood. The third house I bought has been through two cyclones or hurricanes, as you would call them. So far, we're okay. What I'm really worried about is the plague of grasshoppers on the horizon, but you know, that's unlikely at the moment. But the key thing that I found is that after each of those traumatic events, and losing a house to earthquake is relatively traumatic, my appetite for risk changed. Trades that I would take prior to that, I was no longer comfortable with. I made stupid mistakes, I lost money. I had to adjust my trading techniques and approach to manage that new concept of risk. The same after my house was destroyed by flood. I actually went short on as many insurers I could possibly find, get as much money out of them as possible. Anyway, that's another set of questions. But my attitudes to risk changed, my tolerance to risk changed, my trading methods changed. So I'm still using much the same tools, but the types of trades I would take was different. Now, that's just a personal situation. But if you've been in a bad, uh, in a bad car crash, if you've had friends or colleagues or loved ones who have uh, passed away as a result of this pandemic, then you've been through that type of traumatic situation. Some would argue being locked up in your own house for the last six months is a traumatic situation. So your attitudes to risk are going to change and your trading techniques will need to change as a result as well. 
it, it, this is really interesting just in terms of change and adapting to change and it, it, especially as you mentioned as the conditions change so that that fishing metaphor i, I think will, will work quite well in, in at least kind of getting us out the trading um reality and, and then bringing it back to to that same point uh, i mean how have how have you adapted to that change, Daryl? And, and, and what do you say to many of your clients that uh, want to do the same thing? Many, many years ago, before I became involved in the market, I was involved in, in um, what the Americans would call the cowboy, what we call the ring up uh, in the Northern Territory. In other words, rounding up wild cattle in the bush uh, on horseback. And when the country got particularly bad, People would say, there's no room for fancy riding now. So, you know, when you're in open country, yeah, you can muck around and show off a bit as it were. You can make a few mistakes and get away with it. But when you're riding through the scrub, when you're riding through heavy timbered country, chasing cattle that are trying to kill you, they don't think they want to be caught, then you haven't got time for all of those fancy little bits to hang off the side. You have to concentrate exactly on what you're doing. There's no room for fancy riding. And that's the same in these market conditions at this stage. A lot of stuff that we're doing in a stronger bull market, well, you see in the bottom of my books, I say, run with the bulls and hunt with the bears. And what that really means is that when the market's going up, you can make all sorts of mistakes that you want to, and generally the market will carry you on. You'll compensate you for those mistakes. But when you're hunting with the bears, every single mistake is potentially fatal because the market's not working in your favour, it's working against you. So that's the key, key situation here, that... There's no room for fancy writing. You have to focus very closely on what you're doing. And I will argue on Saturday that you need, or it might be Saturday or Friday, depending on where you are, or I'll argue when I'm talking um, at, the, at the conference, that we need to focus on, let's call it some bare essentials. You need to work out what are your core skills, the ones that work consistently time and time again, that you know will generate your money and returns, that's what you've got to focus on and forget some of the bells and whistles and the fancy bits you were playing around with and the sloppiness that crept in in previous bull markets. There's no room for that in these ones. So this idea of resilience and, and, and just kind of just really being on top of your game is, is, is quite important. No, I'd say more the elimination of stupidity. <laughs> well, as a first step. <laughs> um, I, and, and as I, I know one of the other key messages you want to share with us is, is AI, artificial intelligence, and, and, and within the evolution of, of, of your experience of markets, you know, I'm, I'm sure you would have lived through kind of much change, AI being the current change that we're all kind of asking questions about now. How do you see that change and, and what, what's your perspective on AI? Well, let's put it into context. That's it. We've all been locked up. What we're worried about is that out there, there's this monstrous AI running around that's changing the way that markets behave, that are getting between us and the trades that we want to do, and that somehow it's going to be smarter than we are. So where on earth are we going to be positioned once COVID disappears? Once the world opens up, is it going to be dominated by AI and algorithmic trading? Is there any room left for us? Should I be spending more time sitting in front of my computer trying to learn Python coding or something or blockchain builders or whatever? Or should I just concentrate on what I'm doing? And that's, that's a significant challenge. But in a market context, AI has some, some serious limitations. I don't think it's the threat that we sometimes think it is. And when we're in a, 
a harsh environment and a pandemic environment, we're willing to be scared. We're willing to be frightened. We tend to magnify the degree of threat that we're facing and AI fits into that category. So we see lots more writing about AI and the impacts on, on what's happening and so on. So I was doing a keynote speech uh, in China at the end of last year in Qingdao, um, talking about impacts on AI and the conference was about impacts on AI in a much broader sense, but I was talking about the context, the impact of AI within financial markets. And there are some essential dilemmas, characteristics of financial market activity that suggest that AI will have a limited impact on the way that you and I trade. There is still room for us, for me, as a dinosaur, as it were, to survive in these markets, to continue to make good income for myself and at higher levels, you know, a broader sense of income. AI is not a particular threat to us. It's an opportunity. It doesn't replace the skills that we develop. And I will circle that back to some of what I'll talk about earlier on in terms of particularly uh, pattern recognition and uh, chart behaviours and trading behaviours that are not captured and cannot be captured by AI. We've got all sorts of fuzzy logic around them and they just don't work. That's the best way of putting it. So is AI this big monster that's sitting outside of us that's likely to threaten us and drive us into extinction when COVID disappears? I won't tell you because that'll ruin the surprise front on the end of the conference. We certainly don't want to steal thunder and, and, and look forward to saving the best till last. Um, so yeah, I can't I'm, stand people who turn to the back of the book, Ian Rankin's book, and read the last pages and then start at the beginning. Uh, absolutely. So the key intention is, is to whet the appetite and, and also give a give a, a deeper dive, kind of broad perspective on on you and 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 and, and the key message that, that that you wanted to share. Um, in in final. Any key things you're looking forward to at the conference? I mean, this year is, is the first time we're going virtual, 24 hours. So there's lots of kind of new uh, moving parts and we're really kind of making history uh, this year. What are you looking forward to compared to the, 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 uh, the traditional conference to, to the new one this year? I mean, I'm looking forward to catching up with, with friends and colleagues, people I haven't seen for 12 months because normally we'll bump into each other at a conference or at a forum and renew acquaintance and friendships and discussions and so on and so forth. There's a whole lot of casual work that goes on. We haven't been able to do that since the end of last year. So it'll be good to catch up with colleagues and friends. The limitations of this presentation, of course, is that you don't get to engage as directly with the audience. And that's always a problem because it's the audience that gives you information. It's their feedback, not necessarily the ones that are putting their hands up or the ones who are nodding their heads or the ones that are shaking their arms about that again. Yeah, that's the feedback that you don't get in this type of environment. So I'm going to miss that. And I think all of us as presenters will miss that. But being able to listen to colleagues to see how they've survived, what adaptations, what developments they've come up with, what new approaches that they've required or, or, or developed, that's what's going to be particularly interesting. And it's going to be interesting for all of us because there will be things that will come up over the course of this conference that I'll think, yeah, that's worth following up. I hadn't thought of it in that particular way. That's an interesting approach. And I'll go and I'll test it and I'll try it and I'll see what's happening. Uh, and, uh, and that's just to, 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 to round that out. And again, another gratuitous reference, sorry. I have a new book coming out in, uh, in 2021. Uh, if you can share, share more information on that. I won't tell you the information on that. If, um, 
we're talking about a new generation that's coming into, into the market. And one of the challenges for us and for IFTA is to educate them about trading, about technical analysis, the way the two are related and how it works. The younger generation, you know, they're the ones who can program the video and the video machine and the TV and all the rest of it when you and I can't. They are more accustomed to what you might call a gamified approach. And if you look at some of your, um, some of the larger institutions, um, CMC, IG Markets, the CFD providers and so on, they gamify to some extent uh, some of their screens and screen displays and interfaces and so on. But this is the primary method that this group is going to interact and learn about the market. So what I've discussed in detail uh, is how to use, let's call them the games, that are, or the trading competitions that are run increasingly by the exchanges that give people the ability to do a whole range of dummy trades. Now, some of the CFD platforms have the same uh, ability, but the difference generally in the stock exchange games, or a better word, is that you're competing against a whole range of other people. So, you know, there's a race to the top and so on. But that's good because it gives you a measure by which you can measure your particular approach and so on. But the key thing it allows you to do is to test out new trading ideas in a genuine environment without risking any dollars and then to assess those against your competitors who are using different types of approaches. And we think that that's going to be a significant way in which the new generation of traders first make their entry into the market. They won't do as I did. Um, when I first started, I took all of my life savings, which was a grand total of 2,000 Australian dollars, worth a little bit more then than it is now, and put it onto a single stock. Not generally the recommended way to go, but the reality is that's the way most of us enter the market in the first place. Small amount of money that we think is spare. The old, the old idea is only put in the market what you can afford to lose. That's great, you'll lose that money as sure as hell. Put in money within limits that you can't afford to lose and you'll watch it very carefully and then you've got a chance of success. But that's stretching to one side. The only way I could learn about the market, and perhaps yourself, was by putting real money into the market and working through a series of trades. Now, the younger generation, I'm old enough to be able to say that with impunity, the younger generation <laughs> are gamified. So they'll come in into genuine simulated trading through the CFD platforms, through the games that are provided by uh, the stock exchanges and so on. That's where they're going to learn their craft. That's where they're going to hone their ideas. So IFTA and us, have to be able to focus on that group to get them to understand the ideas that they can then apply within that gamified environment before they move in to the genuine market using real money. And, uh, interesting and, and I, th I think um, optimistic point in terms of you know the importance of that, that new market. Uh, some people, especially this year, have been talking about the uh, new traders uh, dubbed the Robin Hood traders uh, in, in terms of uh, that, that uh, venue. Uh, but, but for better or for worse, this is new trading volume, new trading uh, community that are now online. And, and as you say, maybe this is part of a gamification um, uh, kind of experience environment. Yeah, we've tended, you know, us 
older traders, more experienced traders, perhaps are tended perhaps to look at it on occasion. Oh yeah, yeah, that's 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 just that's just mucking around. That's just going. It's not real. It's not going to contribute much. But in fact, there is a well-defined and valid learning path that comes through participation in that sorts of activity, uh, and how we as IFTA position ourselves in there and how we get involved in that. I think that's a primary challenge going forward, and that's. I won't be addressing that directly uh, in my speech, but that sits in the background. And it comes back to my earlier point about this garbage that's on social media that pretends that this is a this is a cup and handle pattern. This is a triangle pattern. Yeah, right. Okay. There's significant, there's significant issues and barriers to effective survival in the marketplace. Um, and if I can um, uh, kind of end on, on an inspiration note in terms of why we do what we do in terms of kind of speaking at the conference, but also listening to each other, uh, speakers, delegates, and what we can learn from each other. Um, I heard this, this wonderful story in a preparation to our discussion uh, about you traveling to KL uh, some time ago uh, to hear Linda Rashke speak. And, and yes. it was, it, correct me on, on the story, uh, but there, there was some takeaway from, from that experience. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Joe Stowell. Joe Stowell stood up. I mean, this was all put together by uh, Tim Slater out of CompuTrack. That was in the days when, you know, a minor charting program cost you an arm, your leg, and your first newborn, as it were. And he put together a, a group that would tour the world nationally. And John Bollard was involved, Linda was involved, Joe Stowell, a whole lot of, of, of major and significant names, as it were, in those days. Anyway, Joe was talking, he did a presentation, and he just did a throwaway on a particular technique he'd used in bond markets. So I've used this in bond markets, it does fairly well. Uh, he called it a three bar net line. Um, he said, oh, you know, take it away and see if you can do it if it works in, in other markets. So that's exactly what I did. I took that three bar net line that Joe Stubble talked about and modified it, played around on the edges, worked it through equity markets, made some adjustments and changes and came out with what we would call a self-adjusting volatility stop, or what we call a countback line. And we gave it a different name with acknowledgement to Joe because the methodology that we used, although based on what Joe was doing, was substantially different enough that you didn't want to create confusion between, uh, between the two. So we've used the countback line, CBL line, throughout all of my trading career it's become a mainstay of understanding volatility and where to set a stop and how to adjust it. And we've modified that a little bit. We've got what we call a trader's ATR application, which I won't talk about on Saturday, I'm sorry. Um, but again, it's a volatility adjusted stop. And often we will use them together on the same chart because depending on the nature of volatility, one is slightly more sensitive than the other. Now, it may be the CBL or it may be the ATR approach. But in either case, what we use is we use the more sensitive one as the initial indicator of time to get out and the less sensitive one as the confirmation of time to get out. And what we found is that's improved our exits considerably. So in other words, put it into plain, simple language, we make more money and we don't get stopped out um, incorrectly. So that's just one little thing. I mean, he threw it away. It was, it was three minutes out of a, a 60 minute speech. It was a throwaway. Oh, we do this, you know, blah, blah. Yeah, right. And that's what is the most important thing, not just for the audience in the IFTA conference, but for the presenters in the IFTA conference as well. Because John will throw away something or mention something that will make me think about what I'm doing or how I can do it better. 
there's always that little bit there that you can take away. And for the audience, the audience, again, it's, it's easier in a face-to-face, -face, the audience will ask questions. That forces you to refine your approach, to be more clearly defined about what you're doing, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it. That's good for me. They also ask questions that will make you think, hmm, that's something I hadn't thought about. Maybe I can put that in here or throw that in there. You go back and you test. So it's the exchange of ideas that's important. And that's one of the things that I like about technical analysis and about IFTA. There is no one saying, this is my idea and you've got to pay $8,000 to get at least a peek at it. It's the sharing, because by sharing, we all improve the way that we approach the market and we all improve our individual trading games. And that's what's really important. And that's, that's the great value of, uh, of the IFTA conference. Beautiful uh, uh, and, and inspirational uh, point that I think all of us should should, uh, should recall: sharing uh, the value of sharing, and that, that we all stand uh, stronger together. Thank you so much, Dale, for um, this this uh, exchange. Thank you for listening. To learn more about IFTA and how to become a member of one of our member societies, or to find out more about our certification, like the Certified Financial Technician (CFTE) and the Master of Financial Technical Analysis, MFTA, visit ifta.org.